Hey, good morning, y'all. Hope all is well. It is a crisp morning in Georgia, and God is, Lord's got us here for a reason, got us together for a reason, and whether you're here with us today, you're watching online, or if you're watching online, you know, and it's Thursday or Friday next week, He's got us together for a reason. We have been traveling with Paul. Uh, by the way, my name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors on our staff. But we have been traveling with Paul during his second missionary journey for, I don't know, a few months probably. He came across Galatia. I'm drawing the other part of the world with my hand. Came from east to west across Galatia, kind of turned a little north, went across the northern part of Asia, and then he got to the Aegean Sea, and he crossed the Aegean Sea into uh, the port city, was, which was Neapolis, into Philippi, which is Europe, what we know is Europe now. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke traveled across the Aegean Sea. They left, Paul, Silas, and Timothy left Luke in Philippi, and they went southwest to a place called Thessalonica. And say that, one, two, three, Thessalonica. I love saying Thessalonica. And he goes down into Berea in Acts chapter 17, and that's where we were last week. We were in Acts chapter 17, the first 15 verses of 17, <coughs> excuse me, and that's where we're going to be today. We honed in on verse 6 of Acts 17 uh, last week, and I think it would be, and we're going to be there again today. This is part two of, of, uh, of last week was part one. Isn't that funny how part two follows part one and Part one precedes part two. But we were in the first 15 or so verses of Acts 17. I think it would do us well to read that passage one more time. So I want to do that. It's going to be on the screen. And you should have a worship guide. If you don't have one, get your hand up and let's get, let us get one in your hands. So the Bible says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And they, as Paul and Silas and Timothy uh, and Luke in Thessalonica, excuse me, and they had left Luke in Philippi. But in Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, and they shouted, These men who turned the world upside down have come here also. These men who turned the world upside down, they came here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. They took a bail bond is really what they did. From Jason and the rest, they let him go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, 
examining the Scriptures daily to see if the things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible they departed. So verse 6. The big shots in the city, the muckety-mucks in the city, shouted, these men who turned the world upside down, they're here. They came here also. Last week, we asked this question. We said, what is it that makes somebody a a wave maker, a quote, a, a troublemaker? What is it about the people that turn the world upside down and inside out? What's their DNA? What are the, the great principles, if any, that permeate their ministries? And we even looked at, at Jeremiah, and we looked at Elijah, and I think I probably mentioned Amos, and you could really, you could probably mention just about any Old Testament prophet, because they came in, they told the truth, and they turned the world on its ears. But then we looked at Paul, and we said that there was maybe five or six things or traits or characteristics or issues or principles that we see in this narrative in Acts 17. And we, do, we said there was probably five or six. And we dove into the first two of them last week. First thing we said that of the people that God uses to make a difference for Christ, the first thing we see is, is courage. Courage is number one. And then we said that these men, that they had the right substance. They had the right stuff. Their content was right. Their, their content was truth. You know, it was truth because, you know, you could have courage and be wrong. You could be courageous and be a false teacher. And then you could have the right stuff, the right substance, the right content, the truth, and never tell anybody because you ain't got no courage. And that's not a good thing either, right? So courage, we said you got to have these guys. They had courage and they had the right stuff. They had courage and they were truth tellers. It's the first two things we talked about last week. I want us to look at numbers 3, 4, and 5 today. The third thing that we see that makes somebody a rabble-rouser, somebody who really, really affects the world for Christ, is this. And we're going to call number 3, and this is going to sound weird, but we're going to call number 3 saved folks. Saved folks. You've got a little fill in your blank. There should be two blanks. Saved folks. Because you know that you're really having an effect when people start coming to Christ. And you may ask yourself, do, 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 do you mean that in order to really affect the world, that there's got to be more Christians as a result of my life? And I'm saying to you, yes, there ought to be more Christians as a result of your life. And that may be a shocking thing, maybe to hear me say. But I believe because of every Christ follower, there should be more Christ followers. There should be converts. There should be saved folks. Now for sure, you may be the one that fertilizes. You may be the one that plants. You may be the one that waters. 
And absolutely, it is God that provides the increase. And oftentimes, maybe even most of the time, me and you don't even get to see the increase. But Lord, every now and again, he throws us a bone and he lets us see the increase. But you may be the water, you may be the planter, you may be the fertilizer. God is going to provide the increase. But if you're a believer, there ought to be increase. There just ought to be. And if you're faithful, and I'm faithful, then it will happen. Well, Ed, how can, I say, how can you say that? How can I guarantee that? Well, I'm telling you that Jesus promised it. Many places, but particularly in the Gospel of John in chapter 15 and verse 16, and these are Jesus' words here, and he's talking to his disciples in John 15. He says in verse 16 of John 15, he says, You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Your fruit should last. Jesus chose these disciples that he's talking to and he appointed them to spread the gospel and bear fruit for the kingdom, bear fruit for God's kingdom. And he chooses each believer, you and I, to be a branch on the vine. And then more believers and more believers and then more branches and then more believers and more believers and then more branches and then more believers and more branches. That's just the way it works. That's the way the Lord designed it before the foundation of the world. And Jesus says that in John chapter 15. And you may be saying to yourself, well, <coughs> well, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not good at that. I'm just not called to that. And I'm telling you that there is no such thing as I'm not called to that. If you are a born again, bought by the blood, if the blood's applied, what a beautiful song we just sang. If the blood is applied and that blood has been applied to your life and you got a heart transplant and you're a new, and you're a new creation, Scripture calls you a new creation. A new creation. There's newness. When we raise somebody up out of the water, when we're, we do uh, water baptism, we say you are raised to walk in what? In the newness of life. And if you're walking in the newness of life, you will have fruit. Scripture promises it. You will. So saved folks, definitely part of this whole deal. And if you take this <clears throat> wicked, jacked up system that all of us live in, and you increase the number of Christians, the number of people with a biblical worldview, the number of people who look at life through a, one of the ways to look at being a new creation is you take off the old self and you put on the new. You take off the old set of glasses, you put on a new set, and you look at life through different lenses. And if we can play a role in increasing the number of Christians, in increasing the number of, of believers, people with a biblical worldview, you're going to have an effect on the system. The system is jacked up. More Christians make the system less jacked up. You can't do it alone, though. You've got to be reproductive. We're called to reproduce. And you want to know why Paul was so effective? It wasn't because Paul went to, into Philippi and into Lystra and into Derbe and into Apollonia and Amphipolis and Thessalonica and Berea. It's not that he went to those places and people didn't believe him. It was because he went into those places, the villages, the towns, the cities, and a big old slug of people did believe him. And that's what turns the world upside down. When we have courage and we speak the truth, 
<clears throat> and people believe the words. It's really like what a rabbi, his name was Gamaliel. And if you jot down Acts chapter 5, Rabbi Gamaliel, who is still revered in Jewish circles today as one of the greatest rabbis in all of history, and in Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel, he told the big shots in Jerusalem because they were beginning to arrest some of the guys. And he told them to leave those folks alone, leave those Christ followers alone. Because if their movement, if their, quote, if their movement, which was called the way, they were followers of the way. You know who the way was, right? Thank you. He said if the, this movement, these followers of this itinerant preacher, carpenter man, he said if that movement was man-made, it's destined to fail. If that movement is man-made, it's going to fail. He said, but if that movement is God-made, then there ain't nothing that you can do about it, and it's not going to go away. And guess what? It didn't go away. Here we are 21, 2,200 years later, and it hadn't gone away. It's grown. And so if you and I can affect people by being courageous and speaking the truth, if we can affect people and lives are transformed, that's what the gospel does, y'all. Jesus changes everything and lives and hearts and lineages are just transformed. If, if we can play a role in that and lives are transformed, then culture and society become transformed. Look at verse 4 and verse 12. Paul preached, Jesus, 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 and some believed. Some were persuaded, I think the Bible says, and some believed. In fact, in Berea, Verse 11 says that the Jews there examined the Scriptures to see if the things that Paul was saying were true. Remember, you've got to have the right substance. We talked about that last week. You've got to have the right stuff. You've got to have the right content. So Paul presented the evidence that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, and the Jews in Berea verified it on their own. They fact-checked it. And what were the results? What does the Bible say the results were? Saved folks was the results. People gave their lives to Christ. That's the result. In Thessalonica, verse 4 said that there was a few Jews that believed in a whole bunch of Greeks and even a big bucket of the leading. The Bible calls them the leading women. In Berea, verse 11 tells us that a whole bunch of Jews believed and a big bucket of Greek women of high standing believed as well as some great men. So the testimony of Scripture what the Word of God says about this is that if we've got the wave maker DNA, if we've got the, 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 the truth teller, the turning the world upside down DNA, people will come to Christ. They will. And subsequently, God uses that to change the big picture. What we see here in Acts 17 is the birth of the church in Thessalonica and the birth of the church in Berea. And it is interesting, too, that in Thessalonica, the, the Bible says that they had to be persuaded, but in Berea, the Jews were more noble. The Bible says the Jews in Berea were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica, the ones that received the word, and they, they were eager about it and therefore believed. The truth is the folks in Thessalonica who weren't so noble, you got to think about this, and this is going to sound weird probably. But the folks in Thessalonica were not so noble because the word says that the ones in Berea were more noble than they were. 
They had to be persuaded in Thessalonica because they weren't that noble. But those, raise your hand if you're noble. All right, so y'all are all like, and I'm like, the folks in Thessalonica. Well, you know what happens when folks that aren't noble come to Christ? God does crazy things in their lives. They, they, the folks in Thessalonica, they went nuts in Thessalonica, and they became exactly what, what God wanted them to be. They became exactly what God wants a church to be. We use language today that they were on fire. That church in Thessalonica, they were on fire for the Lord. But what, what does that prove? It proves that, that salvation is the great equalizer. Salvation makes this playing field kind of level. Because it doesn't matter who you were. It doesn't matter what you were. It doesn't matter what your mom and daddy told you you were before you got saved. It doesn't matter what some teacher told you, what some coach told you. It, none of that matters. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you were or what you were before you got saved. At the moment of salvation, use the churchy word, at the moment of justification, at the moment that justification is the moment in time where you were made right before a holy God, at that moment, it becomes an issue of what's next. No, it really becomes the issue of who's next. And the who is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that comes to live inside of you at the moment, at the second, at the nanosecond of salvation. The Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you. The very presence of God is living inside of you. And the same Holy Spirit lives inside the guy who'd been a crack addict for 25 years when the Lord revealed himself to him and the guy gets radically saved. Is the same Holy Spirit that lives inside the one who grew up in the church, got saved at vacation Bible school when he was seven years old, had been walking with Christ for 40 years. The same Holy Spirit. It's not like the crack addict gets some remedial version of the Holy Spirit. No, you and I, you and I got the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit. That lived inside of my dad. For 29 hours, because he got saved, and 29 hours later he died. The same Holy Spirit lived inside of him that lived inside of, lives inside of the, the crack addict. The, the, we're all crack addicts. Some of us just worse than others. Same Holy Spirit. Y'all get that? What an amazing truth claim that this book makes. God doesn't change. He doesn't change. The same Holy Spirit that lives inside of every believer for as long as there have been believers lives inside of me and you if we are saved, if we are justified. And it's funny because the Jews in Berea, the Bible says they examined the Scriptures. And maybe they had never examined the Scriptures before, but they did now. Paul exposes them. What did Paul expose them to? What does it say? They examined Paul's writings. They examined... No, they examined, they're right, they examined this book. They examined the scriptures. The Bible says they were exposed to the word of God by Paul. They examined the scriptures and they believed. And y'all, it's exactly what happened in my own personal life. I grew up Jewish, grew up in the synagogue. Kept kosher just means I 
kept the dietary laws in the Bible, never actually read them, just did what my mom and dad said to do. In the synagogue four or five times a week. But 22 years ago, I decided to examine the Scriptures. I would never have used that terminology. That's Bible talk. I just picked a Bible up and read it. I guess I was examining the Scriptures. And I would say this. The people that don't believe are generally the people that don't investigate the truth claims that Scripture makes. You meet a guy and he says, oh, I don't believe that book. I don't believe that book, that Bible. I don't, I don't, I don't really buy all that stuff. Well, I would say to him, that's a pretty strong statement to make. You don't buy all this. You don't buy this book. You don't believe it's myths and fairy tales, and, and I don't really, you don't really buy all that. Well, that's a strong, pretty broad, sweeping thing to say. You must have really studied it long and hard to know what it is that you don't believe. You've got to be a scholar to know all of what you don't believe. Tell me about what you don't believe. When I hear somebody say that they're an atheist, that they don't believe in God, I tell them. I ask them, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. Because he ain't some flying spaghetti monster. Right? Tell me about the things that you don't believe in. And the reality is, almost always, they hadn't read squat. They're telling you that they don't believe, they don't believe all this stuff. They hadn't read one page. Not one page examine the scripture and then let's sit down and have a conversation well I did pick it up and I did read it cover to cover started on page one I didn't get on some Bible reading plan and there's a gajillion different ones and they're good and they're fine and I'm not saying they're not I just picked it up started on page one and just started reading until I couldn't read no more and that was at the end of it and I'm not a Bible scholar by any stretch of the imagination but after I read it and after I studied it best I could study it back 22 years ago when I didn't know what I didn't know, but I studied it, I examined it, and I believed every single word from page one to the last page. So y'all, for me, I can't accept somebody saying I don't believe the Bible unless they can tell me what it is they don't believe. Does that make sense? I hope it does. So if you're going to shake some fruit off the trees, consider using the Word of God. Consider using the word. We're so quick as people, and I'm talking about believers. We're going to study Genesis. And you go grab the Genesis commentary before you grab the Bible. Well, we're going to study Leviticus. And I ain't none of y'all going to study Leviticus. But if you were, you'd grab the commentary instead of the Bible. The commentary needs to supplement the, God's word, not God's word supplementing the commentary. Y'all get that? Please commit that you'll do that. Pick up the word of God. The commentary is not inspired. This is inspired. God breathed. That's what that means. And so if you're going to shake some fruit off the trees, if you're going to share, use the Word of God. And then also, though, if you're a believer, you use your Jesus story. You got a Jesus story. If you have been born again, you got a Jesus story. And it's different than mine, and Susan's is different than Caitlin's, and Caitlin's is different than Lynn's. And you know what? God somehow... It's almost like he knows what he's doing. <clears throat> he's going to orchestrate the people that need to hear Caitlin's story into Caitlin's life. The people that need to hear my story, he's going to orchestrate and ordain and get, them, get our paths to cross. Pray that he would do that. Pray that he would cross your paths with just 
the person that needs to hear your story. And then pray that he would use you to tell his story through your life to that person that needs to hear it. Share it and use God's word. Be courageous and speak the truth. So number one was courage. Number two was substance or truth or content. Number three is saved, folks. And the fourth is almost like a result of uh, or a, maybe a consequence of those first three, and that is conflict. Conflict. Courage, substance, saved folks, and conflict. If I confront the world courageously with the right message and people give their lives to Christ, you can take it to the bank that there will be conflict. And I'm not just talking about conflict out them doors out there. I'm talking about conflict in here. I'm talking about conflict within, 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 quote, the church. Well, why do you reckon that is? That is because darkness hates light. It is because darkness hates life. And you are playing a part in increasing the holiness and the righteousness in an unrighteous and unholy world. And y'all, statistics say that 60 to 70% of the people sitting in the church in America every Sunday are lost and going to hell and don't even know it. Many of them think they're saved, but they're not. Many of them just aren't. Many of them are just tares in the body, T-A-R-E-S, in the body. But if you're courageous and you speak the truth, people are getting saved in this building and outside of this building. You're increasing the holiness and the righteousness in an unholy and unrighteous world. And the world despises that. Y'all, the world hates it. What happened in Thessalonica in verse 5? The Jews who rejected the gospel, what did they do? They started a riot. They set the city in an uproar, Scripture says. What happened in Berea in verse 13? The same thing. The Bible says in verse 13 that when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that Paul was in Berea preaching the word, proclaiming the word, what did they do? They came and they started rioting. They came and started stirring up the crowds, stirring up the pot, gossiping, running their mouths, stirring the pot up. You start preaching Jesus, you start preaching and talking about the whole gospel, the whole gospel. Acknowledge you're a sinner, repent, confess, believe. Grace, absolutely. But you've got to acknowledge that you're jacked up and in need of the grace, right? So there's, that's the whole counsel of God, the full counsel of God. You start preaching that. You start talking about Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You can bet your bottom dollar that there's going to be conflict. Absolutely no doubt about it. Darkness hates the light. It is always going to try to overtake the light. Always. Look at the charge in verse 7. It's so interesting. Just on the heels of all these crazy world turner upside downer people are here. But then verse 7 says that the Jews said that Paul and Silas were acting against the decrees of of Caesar saying there is another king 
Who's the other king they're talking about? Jesus. So Paul is preaching the kingship of Jesus. How dare he do that? You start talking about Jesus as the king, and the world ain't going to like it. Because if he's the king, think about this. If he is the king, then the gospel makes a claim on your life. That's a strong statement. If he is, in fact, the king, then he makes a claim on your life. The world ain't going to like that. Because you and I have got to submit and surrender to the king. And don't nobody want to submit to nobody no time. People don't. But the gospel does announce that Jesus is king. You go read the first 17 or 18 verses of Matthew chapter 1. Proves in his genealogy that he is a legal heir to King David's throne. He is the king. And that claim turned, the, turned Thessalonica upside down, inside out, and on its ears. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy, they got to go. Then people are like, you, you got to go somewhere. So if you think that you're a wave maker, you, you, that you're a world turner upside downer, did I say that right? You're a world, I try to make it a noun. You're a world turner upside downer. I don't ask how to spell that. But, but if you're that and you don't have conflict in your life, then you probably ain't doing quite what you ought to do. Why do I say that? Well, forget my answer. What, 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 does Jesus, what does Jesus say about this? Look at John chapter 3. Verse 19, he says, The light has come into the world, and people, <clears throat> excuse me, the light has come into the world, and the people love the light. Is that what it says? No, no, no. It says, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Darkness hates light. So last week, this week, we talked through courage, substance or content, saved folks, and then, and then conflict. And number five, the last thing in a rabble-rouser's DNA, the last thing in a world-changer's DNA, and what maybe undergirds every bit of it is love. It's love. Love kind of weaves its way through the other four. Now, of course, God's love for us, but that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the love for people, our love for people, God's people's love for other people. In this case, particularly lost people, people who don't follow Jesus Christ as their Savior, people who don't have a relationship with the living God. Now, as distasteful as this is going to be, and I am not a hellologist. Anybody know what a hellologist is? There is literally a science called hellology, which is the study of hell. I would prefer not to be a hellologist, so I'm not. But so as distasteful as this is going to sound, when a, when a human being physically dies outside of a relationship with God, they will spend eternity in hell in torment. Y'all, that's an incredible truth claim that this book makes. It's a horrific truth claim that God word, God's Word makes. It, is, it ought to be a tear-inducing truth claim for God's people that His Word makes. 
But you know what? It is an accurate truth claim that this book makes. And nobody wants to talk about that. Or that's all they want to talk about and just say, hello, Carl, you're going to hell. That don't work either. Sorry, Carl, I don't know why. You were who I was looking at. All right, let me just say, okay, Ed, you're going to hell. I mean, that don't work either. But the bottom line is this book makes a claim that says if you die outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're going to hell. That's, a, that's horrific, is it not? Don't wear that as some badge of honor like you're in an exclusive club and you don't want anybody else to get in it. No, it's not a badge of honor. It is a tear-inducing truth that Scripture makes. But you know what? When there's love, there's change. When there's love, the world gets turned up on its head. The Lord's love manifested in His Holy Spirit living inside of, of us, it gives us courage. It gives us the courage to speak. It gives us the courage to speak truth. It gives us the, the He gives us, the, His Holy Spirit gives us the substance. When you pick up Scripture and you start to read, pray the Holy Spirit would illuminate the text and allow you to understand it. Not allow you to understand it so you can get some, some degree hanging on the wall. No, to allow you to understand it so you can share His love with another human being. And lead them to Christ. It's not knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Big deal. You got 75 degrees. Woo! You ain't shared the gospel with nobody. Like, share the gospel. Love undergirds all of that. And when there's love that is willing to risk conflict, you're willing to risk the conflict because people die lost every day. And love is the thing that undergirds that. You know, we, Susan's been in, in Arizona for about three weeks, and I went out there Tuesday. to. She was finishing her, her work on Wednesday, and I went out there Tuesday working on a movie set. And one of the guys, uh, one of the, he's a co-producer anyway, he's telling me about this homeless guy. This is Tuesday night. He's telling about this homeless guy that, all There's about 100 people on the crew, and as they're driving, they're shooting out in the middle of nowhere, and as they're driving on interstate something, interstate something out west, out of this off-ramp, there's a homeless guy every night was there, every day was there, about 70 years old. And finally, and they would, people would drive by him. And uh, finally, one, one day, which, which would have been, I think, on Monday or Sunday, one of the guys, his name is Mike, he's an editor on the movie. He just pulled over and he got out of the car and he talked with this guy for an hour and a half. For an hour and a half. It must have been on Friday before. He talked to the guy for an hour and a half, heard his story. This guy's 70 years old, he's in stage four kidney failure. And his uh, Social Security had somehow gotten messed up and turned off. Well, it just so happens, just so happens that a gentleman named Kevin, who's a co-producer on the movie, has a friend in the Social Security Administration in D.C. He made a phone call, got this guy's Social Security check turned on literally in two days. Anybody ever had any dealings with Social Security office? That, that don't happen, right? That doesn't happen. God jumped in the middle of that situation. Not only did it get turned back on in two days, in those two days they, they deposited what, they had, what he had been owed prior to that all happened within 48 hours. Well, this guy, and, and um, people now are pulling over on the side of the road, people from the movie, talking with him, sharing with him. They sent an email out to the cast and crew and said, hey, we're, 
we want to throw a pass a hat and raise some money. We're going to try to get this guy a place to live. But in the meantime, this 70-year-old man in kidney failure doesn't need to be sleeping in the brush in, um, in Arizona, in Benson, Arizona. It was in Benson, right? Yeah, in Benson, Arizona. So they passed the hat, and everybody in the, in the, from the electricians to the actors to the, to the grips to the craft services, everybody throwing in money in a bucket, and they get this guy a hotel room, and then... I get this text Thursday, this three days ago. It says, All right. It says, William trusted Christ as his Savior Wednesday night. And it says he's been so moved by the love of all of us. He wasn't moved by somebody whopping him upside the head, telling him he was going to hell. Now, was that true? Was it true that if he had died before Wednesday night that he's going to hell? What motivated him? What made him go to the foot of the cross and own his sin and confess Christ as his Savior and believe? It was the love of the body. Think about that. That dude went from lost to found. He was blind as a bat, and now he sees crystal clear. Not as clear as he's going to see, I guess he doesn't see crystal clear. He sees a little dimly probably. But he's going to see crystal clear because his eternity was just secured. Because of the love of the body of Christ acting like the body of Christ. Love is behind all that, y'all. You've heard of the Betty Ford Clinic? Betty Ford's first lady from like 1974 to 77. Gerald Ford's wife, she died in 2011. Well, years ago, her story aired in a made-for-TV movie. And it was a movie that told the story about her raging alcoholism and her recovery. And at some point in that movie, there was a fairly emotional scene that took place, and the family is all sitting around confronting Betty Ford. And, her, and one of her sons says, Mother, you're destroying yourself. You're destroying this family. You are killing yourself. He says, Mama, you're a drunk. You're an addict. How do you reckon she took that? She was ticked. She was infuriated. She told her son that he was being very disrespectful. She even questioned his right to even speak to her like that. Who are you to speak to me like that, she said. She said, how can you say those things to me? I'm your mama. And the boy said, Mama, I said it because it's the truth. I said it because it's the truth. I said it because I love you, and I said it because it's the truth. That confrontation with her family was the catalyst for the Betty Ford Clinic. Now that same clinic, years and years and years later, has helped thousands of people overcome addictions. Many of those people that, came to that, that have come to that clinic and were able to face their addictions, it happened because like Betty Ford's son 
Somebody in their life had two things, love and guts. Love and guts. And guts without love is just mean. Does that make sense? And love without guts doesn't help anybody. So somebody in these people's lives had love and the guts to tell the truth. So it's love, y'all. Love is the foundation of all of that. It's the foundation of, of all of it. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 13. He said that it is our Christ-like love will show that we are his. Our Christ-like love will show that we are his disciples. It's our example. It's our example out in a lost and dying world. How do we treat each other? Out there. How do we treat each other in here, in this church? In this fellowship, how do we act? How do we speak to one another? How do we treat each other? Do people see petty bickering over dumb stuff? People see jealousy or division? They see us being ugly with each other because your feelings got hurt? They see you gossiping? That's a huge one. Don't think that ain't a sin. They see us gossiping. They see us prideful. Do you get your britches in a wad because you did this and that and he didn't do this or that? So you're going to take your kickball and go to another playground. Please, man, give me a break. Is that the way the body acts? Because you got your feelings hurt? That ain't the way it's supposed to be. Or... Do they know you are Jesus' follower by the love that you have for one another? And love is more than just a, look, I'm black and white, and I know I got conflict in my life because I begged for it probably. But, but do people know that you are a Jesus follower because of the love that you have for one another? And love is more than just warm, <coughs> cushy feelings. Does love feel good? Of course it does. But it's more than that. It's an attitude that reveals itself when you get out of the bed in the morning and you put one foot in front of the other. It's an attitude that reveals itself in action. How can we love each other the way Jesus loves us? Sacrificially is the way that he loves us. By helping when it's not convenient to help. It ain't no big deal to help when it's convenient to help. Thank you. Help when it's not convenient. Give when it hurts to give. Thank the Lord that Jesus didn't look up at the cross and say, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. No. It looks like it's going to be painful. Like, no, I'm not all about the scourging and the flogging and the crucifixion. No, 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 no. He willingly did that. Devoting, how about devoting your energy to the other guy's welfare rather than your own welfare? Here's a big one. Here's a huge one. How about absorbing hurts from others without complaining or fighting back? That kind of loving's hard to do. Like, I get it. So was the cross. And you know, if we love that way, that's the very reason, because that's sacrificial. And his example of sacrificial love is like no other example of sacrificial love in the history of mankind. And that's the very reason why people will notice it when you do it and they'll realize that that can't be of you. 
that that has to be of, of some supernatural origin. And y'all, here's the truth. People die lost every second of every day. Some of your friends and some of your family, some of my friends and some of my family, headed for that same destruction. And that's what it is. It's destruction. And so when they look at you and they look at your life and they look at your walk and they look at your words, what is the example that you're providing for them to see? Do they look at you and say, man, that guy loves folks all the time. He loves folks when they're ugly to him. He loves folks when they spit in his face. He loves folks when they're kind to him. He loves folks when they're hateful to him. Like, that's crazy. How are you going to love somebody when they're hateful to you? Because we have the example of our Savior. People that turn the world upside down, that's the way they love. Look at what Romans chapter 5 said. I'm going to leave you with this. This is a large print, but it's not large enough. It's not Ed-sized. <laughs> Look at what Romans chapter 5 says. Verse 6, 8, and 10. I'm going to read you just a little bit of it. Verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Raise your hand if you're ungodly. Christ died for you. What's verse 8 says? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you all realize what that says? While we were hammering the nail in his feet, he died because he loves you. That's what verse 8 says. What does verse 10 say? While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Not while we were his best friend, we were reconciled. Not while we were holding hands around the cross saying kumbaya. No, while we were throwing rocks and insults and spitting in his face. The Word says He died for you and reconciled you. He, may, he, he fixed a relationship that was wrecked in the Garden of Eden. He fixed it. He made it so you can now be restored to that, that relationship. How could anybody say no to that? It's only pride, y'all. It's only pride. As much as you would try to fix yourself, you can't. As good as you may try to be, you can't. As not bad enough as you may try to be, you can't be not bad enough. It, it, don't, it don't work that way. So I, I, just, I just beg you today, like William on the, on the off-ramp on the interstate in Arizona. The Lord's probably been hunting that joker down for 69 and a half years. 70 years old. My old man, my dad, 89 years old. The Lord hunted him down for 88 years and about seven months. Same Holy Spirit's living inside of him, that's living inside of William, that's living inside of me, that's living inside of my wife and my children. Same Holy Spirit. If he's not living inside of you, for God's sake, don't not go to bed tonight without just examining the scriptures. Don't examine, don't go back and watch this message. Don't examine some preacher. Examine that. Examine that. It will lead you to the author of that. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we love you today and we thank you for your grace.
we thank you for your grace, even though your grace doesn't make any sense. Even though, by all rights, I should have been thumped off the planet a long time ago and be worm dirt by now. Lord, but it's your grace, and it's your love, and it's your justice, and it's your mercy, and it's your sovereignty. And they all come crashing together at the foot of the cross of Christ. And Lord, that is where we are saved. That is where we are made right in front of you. Where we are made right in your holy presence. And Lord, let the truth that that we can't do it ourselves, let that truth permeate minds and hearts today. Lord, let people understand that the only thing we bring to the table is the sin that made it all necessary. And Lord, let us understand that you have already taken all that on, that it's going to get paid for, but you already paid for it. And Lord, let people today that don't know you, Lord, let them in this very moment, Lord, my prayer is that they would acknowledge that that they are a sinner. Lord, that they would believe that your death took care of that penalty and that you walked out of the grave alive to provide an eternity of living with you. Lord, I lift all of that up to you in your son's holy and precious name. And I invite y'all, if you need prayer, if you want prayer, if you just want to spend some time at the cross, spend some time at the cross. We have somebody in our, on our prayer team that will be over there at that little table. If you want to talk with me or Susan or anybody after church, would love, love to talk to you.